Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and changemakers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Hello, I'm Dr. Romy Redding. And I'm Dr. Billy Pivnik. And welcome to Couched. Today, we are delighted to have Alison Bechdel, MacArthur genius, award-winning cartoonist, and author of two best-selling graphic memoirs, Fun Home, a family tragicomic, and Are You My Mother, a comic drama, in conversation with Dr. Ken Corbett, a highly esteemed psychologist, psychoanalyst, editor, and author of several books, including Murder Over a Girl, Gender, Justice, Junior High. Please do go to our website to read more about their many achievements and work, www.couchpodcast.org. Thank you, Billy. Welcome back, Ken. Thank you for coming again, and welcome, Allison. So it's so great that you're both joining us today. And I was thinking we could start off, Allison, I wanted to see if you could just briefly orient our listeners to the specific work that we'll be discussing today or focusing on. Are You My Mother? Just a brief intro to that. And then maybe we can ask either of you to begin with a question for the other. I'm imagining that you both have a great deal of curiosity and interest in each other's work. Sure. We're going to talk, I guess, about my, my book, Are You My Mother? Today, yeah. which is a memoir about my mother, but it didn't start out that way. It started out to be a book about <laughs> the self and the other in a very grand philosophical and quite abstract way. And it was only after years of struggling with that story that I realized what I was really, really trying to write about was not self and other or the concept of relationship in general, but about this very specific and formative relationship, the one with my mother. And oddly, what the, what the memoir about my mother turns out to be about is in part the process of writing my previous memoir, which was about my father and required a, a lot of complicated negotiation with my mother to tell this very intimate private family story in a public way. So that's kind of the backbone of, of the dramatic action in Are You My Mother? But the memoir about my mother is also very much about my own process with therapy and psychoanalysis. And not just my process, but my own effort to understand how those things worked and why they had been so salvational for me. So Alison, it strikes me that you are a great consumer of psychoanalysis, beginning as a child by <laughs> finding your way to Dr. Spock. But one of the things about the book that really intrigues me are the, the path that you chart. As I think you tried to sort out your initial question about how we live between the self and the other. And I would venture that leads us then to questions of how we live with our mothers and through our mothers toward the other. But maybe you could just say a little bit about your, your psychoanalytic education, <laughs> is what I would call it. Well, it's, yeah, it's true. As a child, I, I discovered my mother's copy of Dr. Spock. And I found this very fascinating and deeply soothing in a way. I found stuff that spoke to my own anxieties, a, a whole section about obsessive compulsive behavior and tics, which I felt 
completely matched the experience I was having. And it was just really helpful to see that this was a thing and to hear someone speaking about it with understanding and compassion. I realize now that I was kind of, you know, functioning as my own parent and seeking out this childcare book. And I was really happy to learn once I was much older and writing this book about my mother, which also is a book about Donald Winnicott, to learn that Winnicott had been a huge influence on Dr. Spock. So (laughs) I'm always trying to forge these fictitious connections between myself and Winnicott. And here's one of them that Actually, I was getting some of Winnicott through Dr. Spock as a small child. That's actually kind of great forging a fictitious relationship with Winnicott, which would be completely in the spirit of what he would be asking Mm -hmm. you to do. (laughs) I was thinking how many of us do that with Winnicott. And there was somewhere early in the book where you're like, I want Winnicott to be my mother. Yeah. Oh, my God. I love that. (laughs) And I thought, how many people I know who might say the exact same thing, including myself, or have at least experienced some level of that. Tell me if you think this is correct, Billy and Ken. Um, He seems to transcend the typical factions in psychoanalysis, and it seems to be that all kinds of theoretical orientations find a connection to him or lay some kind of claim to him in his work. You know, I don't find that he lives in one realm. I think he was kind of at the time that he was writing, he was bridging the Anna Freud people and the Melanie Klein people and their influences of both. But he really focused on the self in a way that none of them did and the intersubjectivity in a way that was lived from the inside, not the outside. He wasn't making pronouncements like Melanie Klein. He was watching the kids play and, and trying mm-hmm. to find his way into a conversation with the child Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's very, very special and very independent thinking. And I think partly because he was a pediatrician, right? Some of his early work was just like, how, how do the child and mother negotiate a wooden spoon? And also, I think that grounding in the, in the body that he had as a, you know, being trained as a doctor. Mm-hmm. There's something so deeply somatic about totally. all of his ideas. Yeah. Ken, you were wanting to jump in there? I would just say that one of the things that Billy just said there about he was trying to work from the inside, not from the outside, I appreciate. But at the same time, I do think that one of the ways in which I might want a slightly different mother is a mother who was more attuned to the social. Ah, yes. In that way, when he does venture toward the social, I don't find it always very satisfying. And Mm -hmm. one of my enduring interests in psychology and psychoanalysis is the ways in which the social makes us. The social is not outside the door. It's in us even before birth. And so I have been in my own work recently trying to bring the social to Winnicott and see what I can do with it in that way. Cool. Maybe that's why I like Winnicott so much, because I just am kind of terrified of the whole social realm. (laughs) <laughs> but I would venture that the, that's, the, that's what the social does to us. It terrifies us to mm. some extent. One of the ways in which the social keeps us in order, as it is within us, is through anxiety. And we are regulated, socially regulated by anxiety. And your book, actually, both of these books, I think, especially at one point, you, if I remember correctly, you talk about your mother as being, is it ground down by the conventional which is a perfect expression of that kind of anxious normative Mm. regulation. And as well, I think we can see how your father was, you know, in his own way, 
and perhaps, you know, in a really profound way, mortal way, I guess I would say, ground down by the social as well with respect yeah. to his, his own ways of knowing himself as a sexual human. Yeah, that's true. And how are you defining the social, Ken, so our listeners can get a sense of that? What does that term encompass for you? I think it just has to do with the ways in which the world is ordered and socially ordered and, and how that is transferred to kids so early on. And, I, and like I said, I think it's transferred even before birth. So like a really good example is when somebody tells you they're pregnant, you often ask, is it a boy or a girl? As though knowing that gender will know that child and that, that fetus is already ordered by, mm-hmm. a, by a social norm. Thank you. The irony is that Winnicott, in a way, was the first one to take into account the social when he said there is no such thing as a baby, right? He meant there's always a a baby and mother pair, but he didn't go too far beyond the mother. And we are finding now that we really need to understand the whole social context, which I guess is what you're talking about. And how that context is transferred via a mother, right? Exactly. In keeping with the idea of a mother. I found myself, when I was reading Alison's books, thinking, what is it to know a parent? <laughs> mm. How, and I, for a long time, I've lived with this half-playful, half-fantastic wish to write an advice column for kids where they would write in and oh, cool. ask questions about their parents. <laughs> but of course, oh, that, would, love it. that would fail because it would always be well, mediated by the parent. Right. But it's in keeping with Allison reading Dr. Spock. So her mother didn't have to. But we, you know, the thing is, we, we don't really think of our parents as other people. I certainly didn't until I was, you know, an adult. Um, they're just extensions of, of me. Well, and yet in your book, you've got, you know, the Are You My Mother title reminded me of this children's book that I used to read to my children when they were very young. There's a book called Are You My Mother? And this little bird is going around to machines and various animals and saying, are you my mother? Looking for the one that's a match where he's going to feel at home. And of course, my kids are adopted. So this had particular meaning. Oh yeah, that's a really good book for adopted kids. Right? Did you have that in mind when you picked your title? very intentionally an illusion. (laughs) to that title. I was surprised uh-huh. to learn that you could actually, you can't copyright book titles, so you're free to reuse any one that you like. Huh. Hmm. Maybe yeah. my next book will be Anna Karenina. But you know, I mean, in the spirit of, in the spirit of what it means to know a mother, I, I, I think you do this great thing because you, in that book, you say, my mother composed me as I now compose her. Um, and I think that cuts back to what you said about how the composition um, between uh, a parent and a child is not thought it's lived, um, but eventually it comes to be thought. And that a mother is made and then found, I think is how Winnicott would have that. But the process of finding them is often fraught, right? <laughs> and leads you through several different therapists and several different psychoanalytic writers in, in trying to do so. Yeah, yeah. I guess I hadn't thought of it in exactly those terms, but I think that's exactly what I was attempting to do in each of these memoirs was to find my father and then to find my mother. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's painful. Um, oh. It's a very painful process. <laughs> indeed, indeed. It's often a process that's threaded with not only aspects of separation, but I think profound loss and mourning. Yeah, yes. And that's a feature often of analyses that I am quite aware of with my patients, the, the ways in which finding a mother is almost in keeping with losing her at the same time. Because of all the ways that you see you, you weren't met, <laughs> I, I hate to complain. I had a pretty good life. I'm very privileged. I'm, I've been lucky in many ways. But there's just something tragic about parents and children that <laughs> under the best of circumstances, something is going to be missed between these people. So. Yeah, and in that missing something, if it is good enough, as Winnicott would have it, in that missing, there is a, kind, a space that can be held in order for each of you to be found. And one of the things you say at the end of Fun Home, and I'm not going to get this exactly right, but you say something, despite it all, we managed to have a lot of fun, or maybe that's what you said at the beginning. Of it, it was in my dedication, yeah. Ah, ah, ah. Um, I dedicated the book to my mother and my brothers and... Yeah, I said in spite of everything we did, we did have a lot of fun, but, you know, referencing the, the title. Yes, now. right, right. But you do something in composing your parents that makes them very universal, so much so that it could become, you know, a story about growing up in a funeral home could become a Broadway play that was so popular and successful so for so many years. And I, that's part of your art, I think. Thank you. Certainly that's what I was trying to do. You know, I feel like I'm not really a writer. <laughs> I am a cartoonist and I'm I'm drawing these stories about my family as well as writing them. And there's something that I feel like I'm really lucky to have access to, which is just people's affect in a way that I'm not as a good enough writer to convey, but I feel like I can often convey people's body language and facial expressions. And that you can just communicate a great deal through those things. Absolutely. The drawings were so powerful. I find myself wishing that we could like show the drawings as we're talking about the book because the full experience isn't conveyed without the images. I'm feeling a lot of anxiety right now <laughs> because I, I'm not, not good at talking without pictures. So mm. I just wanted to just wanted to say that out loud. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, we, maybe we should be playing a squiggle game. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll get out my Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know if our listeners know about the squiggle game, everybody. It's a technique that Winnicott used when playing with children. And he would make like a little doodle or the child would make a doodle and then he would make something out of it. And they would take turns like that. Through that, they would begin to tell a story that involved the unconscious of both. Andre Green, who's a famous French psychoanalyst, said, meaning is not discovered, it is created. It is a potential meaning. And there was something about your drawings, Allison, that created potential space, at least for me when I was reading your book. I could visualize and put myself into the scene in a way that I might have had a harder time doing if it were just in words. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You know, when I learned about Winnicott's squiggle game, it was, you know, it was something I'd already somehow known or played. Maybe, maybe from being an art student, it was something that I'd done in a class or something. But it already seemed very familiar to me, and I just love the use that he made of it. What an amazing tool. I mean, it's fun. It's fun to do just, you know, if you're stuck waiting somewhere with someone, it's a really fun game. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> Actually, and I haven't it played it in a while. Tool. 
It's a great tool, but I, I actually think its utility is often as you leave the squiggle. It's often been my experience with kids when you play a squiggle game. They, depending upon the kid, they are more or less cooperative with keeping that game going mm. and they want to move it toward their own game and they want to move it toward what it is that they have to say because they want to say what they want to say. So it's like a really good cocktail, this squiggle game. <laughs> <laughs> and it can be good in families because it's kind of a leveler, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Everybody's got the same facility with nonverbal doodles, mm-hmm. more or less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the parents can't outsmart the mm-hmm. kids so much. I'll just say that one of the reasons we're talking about Winnicott today is because we just experienced the 50th anniversary of his death. He died in January of 1971. So it's an interesting benchmark 50 years out. And Ken, I just read your wonderful paper about Winnicott and the moon and with your idea that the moon was a transitional object for him as he moved toward his own death. The collected works of Winnicott have been published by Oxford Press, and they came out in 2017. And I've been working my way through them. There are 12 volumes. And in volume nine, when he publishes the final version of his paper on transitional objects, is from 1969 to 1971. And he dies at the end of that volume. And what is really um, quite moving are these references, including a poem that he writes to the moon and descriptions in letters with various friends of his, where he describes waking often in the night and going in search of the moon. Uh, Presumably, he was going to his window to see if he could find it. I began to think about the ways in which a moon is in the spirit of a transitional object. A moon is both real and not real. And of course, the moon is real, but it's also fictive in the degree to which it plays in our imagination. You know, the moon too is, it's both earthly and, and not of this earth. You know, it has this right. great impact on, on our physical reality, but it's, it's up in the sky. Right. And I wrote that paper while I was in Cape Cod this summer. Oh, cool. And so there you cannot be you cannot not be aware of the moon. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'd have to be, I don't know. I don't know how it would be possible. But the moon is so present over the water and, of course, its relationship to the tides. I think in, that's a, a really good index of whether your life is in order, is whether or not you're aware of the phase the moon is in. <laughs> mm. Yeah, 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 I agree. I'm thinking about Ken, before we started, you mentioned creativity, and and I think that's what we're pointing to in all of these examples, Winnicott's Squiggle Game, certainly your book, Allison, your way of encountering the moon in Cape Cod and then creating a paper. Was there more that either of you wanted to say about, I know it's such a broad concept, creativity, but was there something specific you wanted to be sure to talk about today with regard to creativity, its use, its curative power, especially in this world today, because I think I rely a lot on what people create to help me through what we're going through at this time. I know that Winnicott, I don't know, I feel sort of nervous discussing Winnicott with three analysts. I don't know what I'm talking about, but 
He, I would disagree. I would strongly disagree. (laughs) (laughs) You're able to show it, not just tell it. One of the most helpful things for me about Winnicott was just the way he encouraged creativity or, or saw creativity as like a natural state that gets impeded by things along the way. If you're fully alive, you are being creative. You're living a creative life. And I just find that a useful guide, like the moon. <laughs> right, <laughs> I'm living right. a good life if I feel creatively free and able to move and think freely. I think that's helpful. Thank you. For me, I, I I agree as well. And I guess maybe in relation to something that Romy was asking there, I think that creativity, and in particular, as Winnicott saw it, was the opportunity for potential. So in a time of such social unrest and fear, just straight up fear, I think, of course, we live in a here and a now. And that here and that now is sadly troubled by a diminished social imaginary, I would call it, Mm -hmm. and as well, a kind of social disrepair. So you can't like, you cannot not recognize that with any given patient or any given friend or family member or whomever, but creativity and play, I think are a way to look from the here and now to the there and then. Mm. Yes, there is a here and now, but there is the potential of a there and then. And I, I think in part that's, that has something to do with how psychoanalysis works. I, I feel like something is happening now with this great clash between quite repressive forces and quite liberatory ones. Mm. You know, it's just crazy that we have these people storming the Capitol at the same time that people are making incredible breakthroughs about the way we think about race, the way we think about gender. Like, I I mean, I can't help but see these things as being connected. So I had this other thought about it. You, in your Are You My Mother book, essentially were kind of playing a squiggle game with Winnicott. You know, you would have a thought and then you'd insert one of his thoughts, or he would have a thought you were reacting to and you'd create it into a squiggle. And then, of course, there were also, you added in some Virginia Woolf and a few other people into the squiggle game. And it it just left a kind of openness for imagination. And I was particularly struck by your use of To the Lighthouse, because I think Virginia Woolf is always playing with those two polarities that you're talking about, the stasis versus the moving, and that we're always working between those two polarities. Yeah. I was very envious of how To the Lighthouse just came to Virginia Woolf all in a rush as she described it, this rush of images, this mm-hmm. torrent. And I had this really kind of magical experience. My, my creative process is usually just very painful, very clogged, very slow and grudging. But one day when I was struggling with myself and other book, <laughs> I went out into the woods and it was during the spring thaw and I found this little waterfall and I stuck my head under it because it just seemed like the thing one should do. And the next day, although I didn't make this connection for many years later, the next day I had the first flash of inspiration I'd had on that book ever. And it was, it was this image of Virginia Woolf and Donald Winnicott meeting on the street. Loved that and, part. And, I, and that was when they both became characters in, in that book. Mm-hmm. It was the mm-hmm. only unforced aspect of writing it. <laughs> <laughs> 
as you referenced it right away, pops up the image of the drawing you did of that scene. And again, like kind of looping back to the power of the, the drawings there, like Billy said, there is a way in which one can insert themselves into the scene and also at the same time be at, outside of it and really hit by it, like, and then play like, whoa, imagine, I bet, I wonder if that happened if they walk past each other and then, you know, associations flow. So I so appreciated that. It was an act of play that I had suddenly been liberated to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so can you write a lot about play? I mean, you, you make your living playing first with children, now with adults more. I wonder if you could say more about what inspires you to play, because you're such a good player. Gosh, it's a great question. But you know, the, the one time I saw you in person, Ken, you were playing Bananagrams, I believe. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, true, I was. It brings the high-mindedness kind of down to the, <laughs> to the present. <laughs> well, I don't know. It depends on who you're playing Bananagrams with. It can be yes. a throwdown. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So... You know, I have a long abiding interest in childhood, and I don't think that childhood is that which defines play. But my first two patients were three years old, and I worked with them until they were six. And I saw them five days a week, and I was supervised by two very senior analysts. So it was a remarkable way to enter into what it is I then became my life work. I'm I'm not sure I really even knew that's where I was headed at that juncture. And so I think I learned a great deal about how it is that children, how they narrate their lives and their experiences. And then as I began to work more and more with adults, I began to try to apply those same ideas Mm -hmm. to work with adults. And I've always said, another thing I've always said to all of my students is that everyone should have at least one child patient a day because they provide you with the best supervision. (laughs) Mm. A child patient is not shy about telling you to shut up or telling you, no, that's not right. Or, you know, stop talking or just play. (laughs) And, And they're wonderful at making you aware of the immediacy of the exchange and the interchange and to not move away and into pronouncements in the form of interpretations. Which, Allison, you bring into your book the Winnicott quote about his thoughts on what he comes to later in life, his reflections on the problematics of over-interpreting or interpreting those pronouncements. Did you have something in mind in terms of your own experience in psychoanalysis of, of when that felt like top down and too heavy versus when you found your way forward with something else the analyst provided. I loved how he described that he used to take joy in making an interpretation, but now he, he feels more joy in seeing the patient come to a realization themselves. And that was just very moving to me because I feel like that's always what we're all trying to do. I'm sorry, you guys, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not used to talking to other people. I've been like alone in my basement <laughs> for a year. <laughs> I was with you 100%. <laughs> but Hanging something. on your words. How would you draw it? <laughs> there's something about getting back to that state that you just described, Ken, that childhood state of somehow understanding everything, knowing everything. You haven't yet realized that you're going to lose it all and have to 
get it back somehow. But I think Winnicott exemplifies that that arc really beautifully, the way his own thinking became both kind of more abstract and abstruse as he got older, but also much simpler and just kind of boiled down more and more to its essence, to the essence of the, you know, that great paper about mm-hmm. the, the use of an object, which seems like the sort of the singularity at the center of all his thinking. But things just get hopefully simpler and you get back to some kind of beginner's mind if you keep doing the work. Mm-hmm. Well said. Thomas Ogden, an analyst in San Francisco, has said of Winnicott, or, or has said of psychoanalysis, that in the 20th century, there were many great thinkers, but Winnicott was the great English writer. And it's through his writing and the play of his writing, and I think that's exactly what you're getting at. You're brought in as a reader, and you're given a lot of room to work with what it is that he's saying and to take what he's saying and play with it, which you do such a phenomenal job of in the book and in the previous book as well, I think. Um, there's a fair bit of Winnicott in there too, whether that was your intention or well, not. Well, his writing is incredible. It's, he, he doesn't mm-hmm. use jargon. There are very few psychological mm-hmm. terms in his work. At the, and at the same time, it's often difficult to grasp. It seems easy, but then you realize it's, it's difficult. But then when you get it, you realize it was easy after all. <laughs> That's such a great description of of how it goes. My experience was very similar. Yeah. Wonderful. So I'm trying to imagine my way into this conversation as a listener out there in podcast world. And I'm imagining that some people are wondering why we're talking about play in relation to psychoanalysis, which people think of as A, verbal, and B, something done lying on a couch. I think that, that play is too often conflated with playfulness or with a certain kind of lightheartedness. And that is not what Winnicott meant at all, actually. What he meant was that play is the ability to sustain a paradox where things can be real and not real at the same time. And that that's vital to how it is that we undertake a psychoanalytic enterprise. So that can happen on the floor with a child playing a game with a set of dinosaurs, or that can happen with an adult patient on the couch who's moving through whatever it is that they're saying by associating to what it is that they're saying, and the words become like the dinosaurs on the floor, right? They have their relationship and interaction. And one of the things that Allison does, I think, really well in bringing Winnicott and Wolf together is that Virginia Woolf had an astonishing capacity to associate and link, right? And, and to bring the lives of, I've forgotten, is it 12 or 15 characters enter into the first few pages of To the Lighthouse without any oh. introduction, without yeah. any, any background, right? And we're yeah. just brought into the web and the, the interweaving of their lives almost, it feels to me, seamlessly. And so that is a great example of how adults play. She was masterful at it, but it, it's, it's a really good example. I'm just going to free associate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go from the, the notion of, of free association to 
what we were talking about earlier about just this current state of affairs that we're living in and how free association is is a democracy, you know, mm. and it's being impeded. It's being stoppered up. And uh, it's just it's not good. Yeah, it's being, it's being insurrected, <laughs> I think. Yeah, yeah. And part of free association is then the links that you make with the free association A and free association B. It's the play between them that becomes really important, right? And if there is no play between, if there's no potential space that can be created in between, then it's stopped, like you just said. Exactly. Yeah. I just, I've been having this image of the play in a steering wheel ah. as an as a example of the, the kind of play. It's just like a, it's a freedom to move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And to go, go yeah. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> in so many ways, that type of freedom has been halted quite extremely for, for many people and to lesser degrees for others. What a compact way of saying it. Free association is democracy, compact mm. and full. I'm going to. Hold on to that one. And at the same time, there are a lot of people who seem to be so profoundly uncomfortable with play. You know, they want it to be that sterile kitchen table. They want everybody to think the same thing and look the same way and have the same idea. And yeah. Well, again, I think we are often, especially as children become adults, we're made anxious by play. And it's a really unfortunate feature of the social world we live in. Or, or, or playing, one is instructed to play in the right ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of murder over a girl. I mean, anxious to the mm-hmm. point of murderous rage. Yeah. yeah. Right? Your book yeah. we actually talked about in another episode. I think I'm going to just say it not as a question, but as an expression of appreciation. Your book, Allison, is such a wonderful destigmatizing of therapy and psychoanalysis. I personally experienced it that way. And I think it's a a beautiful invitation for people to come and explore should they be compelled in any way to do that kind of self-exploration. So I just want to thank you for that. Well, sure. Do we have time to just talk about Winnicott's death quickly? Because that's that's something that both can... Yes, let's do that. You you even had a picture of it in (laughs) your book. Yeah. That was amazing. I drew it. (laughs) Um, mm-hmm. I was I was moved that he got up in the night to go use the bathroom and died. But when his wife found him, he was leaning on a chair and yeah. they, they never sat on chairs. They always sat on the floor and leaned up against chairs, like in this very playful way. That's something that was just very typical of how they live. So it was moving that he was found in this playful position. And I had to find a way to draw that accurately. But Ken, you too were drawn to like really visit that moment of his death. I, I was, and I was drawn to try to think about, you know, when Winnicott talks about the transitional object, you know, the classic example being the teddy bear, that which is real and not real, the paradox between, again, to go back to what I was saying before, and how children employ those kinds of objects as they begin to move into the, the swirl of the outside world, right? But Winnicott sort of talks about transitional objects moving into the cultural realm. And I guess there he thinks of them as creativity and making art and perhaps even politics. And I don't know if he would agree with that. 
was your thinking too that it is a something that one holds on to as they're moving toward death between life and death between life and death okay i love that you actually found the phase that the moon was in and it was it was just before the new moon at the very last beginning of the moon that he died yeah that was part of my exhaustive moon research (laughs) (laughs) i just am thinking of that famous prayer that winnicott had lord let me be alive when i die Ah, yes. I like to think that that he was. Wow. That he was aware of what was happening to him. Yeah. And then he goes forward in the next paragraph to actually describe how he was alive while he was dying. Yeah. So he imagines it. Um, He he moves and he creates it, let's say. Talk about play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that makes me want to cry. I mean, we are, it's like a credo for today's world. Let us be alive when we die Mm. because the death is so around us and so many people who can't connect to other people and are alone when they die. Mm. Mm. Let us be alive when we Mm -hmm. die. Thank you so much. Thanks, you guys. This was fun. Yeah, Yeah. this was really fun. Really, really fun. And I hope I get to see you all in person someday soon. I know, I know. Yeah, We're getting, I hope, closer to that possibility. Thank you for listening to Couched with Drs. Billy Pivnik and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. 